the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thanks, Hayley. Um, our la- last, well, not ever, but our last reading from Romans for this series as we've read through this magnificent book over the last year or so. What a great sort of privilege it's been to hear from the Apostle Paul. Friends, uh, Duncan's my name if we haven't met, pastor here at Trinity South Coast, and you're, I'm really glad uh, you're able to join us this morning. Where uh, We are coming to the last of our sermon series, our, our series as we've got looked through the book of Romans uh, over the last year or so. It's been a spectacular journey as the Apostle Paul's really kind of taken us to the heights of what God is on about in the world. Um, we're also using today, though, as a bit of a... A hinge uh, that we're, we're finishing off Romans, but we're kicking off another series, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, but as before, we get started though. There, there'll be a, a picture come up on the screen. Uh, perhaps you recognise this this dapper-looking young chap. Uh, he's he also happens to be the greatest musical genius the world has ever known. Uh, maybe uh, apart from you know someone else, I don't know. But J.S. Bach, if you've ever heard of J.S. Bach, uh, Bach lived around the turn of the 18th century. And he was a devout Christian man, um, and uh, whenever he would write a competi- uh, composition, he would uh, start his competition by writing two letters at the top of the page, JJ, which stood for the Latin for Jesus help me. Uh, and he'd finish his composition by writing three letters at the end, uh, when, he'd, when he'd kind of finished and he was happy with it, he'd write SDG at the end of his competi- uh, compositions of his, of his music. You can see them at the end of his manuscripts. I think there's a picture of one there. Uh, The letters stood for the Latin phrase that we're going to be looking at today. SDG, Soli Deo Gloria. Soli Deo Gloria, which is the Latin for to the glory of God alone. To the glory of God alone. Uh, That idea, this idea that this is all for God's glory, stood over all of Bach's work. Uh, He once said that music's only purpose should be the glory of God and the recreation of the human spirit. Uh, But it wasn't just an insight that kind of came to Bach. Uh, He was picking up on something uh, that was really key. Uh, He was expressing what had been a key emphasis of a movement that he was a part of that was kicked off about 150 years before him. Uh, This movement called the Reformation in the early 16th century. Um, we're going to be hearing more about the actual story of the Reformation over the next month or so, uh, when the, the story of how, uh, through uh, God using a few key leaders in the churches, the, the Protestant church was begun as it broke away from the Roman Catholic Church of its time. Uh, we're, we're going to sink our teeth into that story a little bit more as we go through uh, the next number of uh, uh, weeks. Next week is a bit different. We'll talk about that later on. Next week we're going to have, not in this series, but the ones after that we'll be coming back to it. Uh, but this week, as we finish Romans, as I said, we're going to be thinking about this, uh, this phrase that, uh, that kind of was motivated and sat over all of Bach's work, but that he was kind of picking up from this Reformation period, soli deo gloria, God's glory alone. And part of the reason for that is that this passage that we'll be looking at in at the end of Romans 16, um, it highlights not only this great emphasis of the Reformation, everything for God's glory alone, this, this passage at the end of Romans actually highlights 
all of the five things that we're going to be thinking about over the next month or so. Uh, The Reformation was driven by five catch cries. Um, They all had kind of Latin terms for them, but uh, the catch cries in uh, in English uh, were God's glory alone, uh, which sat over them all. Uh, And maybe you're familiar with some of these. We're going to be looking at them in the coming weeks. Scripture alone has our only authority. Grace alone as what drives us and is our salvation. Faith alone, the only way that we access salvation by faith. Christ alone, the only one in whom our salvation is found. Uh, And yes, this fifth one, to God be the glory alone. Paul's finished his incredible letter. Uh, This is the last thing he wants to say and it's all in there. It's It's not in kind of the same order as we'll be taking it, but I just want to quickly show you how all of these things All of these things, Paul jams into this last complex little paragraph of his his letter. He says uh, at the start, verse 25, it should be up on the screen, he he finishes his letter by this, he says, Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, this gospel that he's been writing about and sinking his teeth into all the way through Romans, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ... Christ alone is what Paul is on about. Christ alone, what he has done. It's not just Christ alone, though. He uses the word alone in different senses, so you'll pick that up as we we go along. Uh, He goes on to talk about Scripture alone. This gospel that he proclaims about Jesus Christ is in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings. This great story of God's salvation that we have in the Bible, in the Scriptures, has has been made known in the Scriptures uh, alone. Uh, What, though, sits kind of... What motivates all of this? What's the power behind all of this? Well, it's God's grace alone. It is by the eternal command of God, by the command of the eternal God. This all comes from God and His desire to save his people. It's not just uh, grace alone, it includes faith alone, though. Next one. So that Gentiles, all the Gentiles, might come to the obedience that comes from faith, the obedience that comes out of faith. It's all about, from our perspective, faith, open handed trust in God that works itself out in a life of thankful obedience. Uh, I'm skimming over all this. This is what we're going to be sinking our teeth into over the next few weeks. Uh, And all of it is to God's glory alone. Verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. You notice how Paul, you can't see it up there, but if you've got your Bible, you can kind of see how Paul um, uh, surrounds the whole paragraph with this idea of God's glory. He starts, now to him who is able to establish you. He kind of starts that phrase and then all of these things is what God has done. To him, the one who has done this, the one who has given us his word, the one who has saved us by his grace in Jesus, who, the one we know through faith, to him be glory forever and ever. Paul himself, though, is at the end of this letter, he's just really picking up on a theme that traces through the whole Bible story. So we're going to do something a little bit ambitious today. It's a bit different to how we'd normally um, go about things here at Trinity South Coast, which is... Uh, think most of our time in a particular passage. What I'd like to do is uh, to trace this story of 
the glory of God. As it's revealed to us through the whole story of the Bible, uh, it's going to be, uh, we, we can't do it justice, obviously, in one morning. You'll find in your, in your leaflet there, I've put um, a, a little insert with some more Bible passages and other things that might be helpful uh, t- to go away with, take away with you, just to remind yourself and reflect on some of these things. Um, and so that, that, if nothing else, that will be a helpful thing to do. Um, but when, uh, when Christians can talk about God's glory, um, we can often talk about it in, as if, or we can talk, often talk about it as something that we do. We glorify God. Uh, there's something true about that. We give glory to God in our lives, and that does come through. We'll get to it later. But it's really interesting to, and, and really important, actually, to note that in this story of God's glory, the majesty and power of God, as it's revealed in the Bible, it's not primarily actually to do with us. It's not about primarily something that we do. First and foremost, it's simply a description of reality. God simply is glorious. Whether or not we give him glory, he already has all glory in himself. Uh, If you're kind of like complex old English sentences, you can find on the back of uh, that little insert a a bit of a quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, Des alluded to that earlier, quoted from that earlier. Uh, It has this, I mean, you've got to take about three weeks to actually understand it. Uh, But it has this great description of the glory of God. He says, God has all all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. He is alone in and unto himself, all sufficient, not not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto and upon them. Uh, that's all, uh, you know, that, that, don't get too caught up in the details. You can ponder that and sort of read through it slowly later. It's pretty wordy, but you get the main idea, right? It's not as if we do God any favours by glorifying him. He isn't kind of needy. He doesn't have this lack within him that he needs us to boost his own ego with. He simply is all glorious, all majestic, all powerful in and of himself. But the wonder of the gospel, friends... <laughs> The wonder of the gospel is that through Jesus he makes us sharers in his own glory. Not because he needs us, but simply because he wants us, he calls us, he he freely draws us into his own glory, purely out of his love and his free grace. Glory is just simply who he is, and yet he shows his glory, he makes his glory known to his people. But in the story of the Bible, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, in the story of the Bible, there's a huge problem that comes up in this story. It's a problem that really sets up and drives the whole Bible, the whole story. Uh, It's especially in focus in the Old Testament, and again, that insert has a bunch of passages from the Old Testament that you might like to read through later. Uh, This huge problem is, how can this all-glorious, great creator God, the one who is... Uh, complete in and of himself, or so majestic, how can this one be in relationship with people? Not just people who are limited and sort of creatures, but who are sinful people, who reject his glory, who turn away from him. Uh, People who don't recognise him for who he is. People who don't worship him as we're made to. So right at the beginning of the Bible, there's this tension 
the great glorious God, how can he be in relationship with his people? God's people need him. God's people need him and his presence among them is this incredible blessing as you read through the story of the Bible, this great blessing that God is present with his people, but it's also terrifying, his presence, because of this huge gap between his people who are stuck in their sin and the all-glorious, white-hot, burning majesty of God. The tensions all through the Old Testament... God's glory comes to his people, God shows his glory, but it never turns out well. It comes to this sad end. I'm skipping over the whole Old Testament, but it comes to a sad end at the end of the Old Testament when when the Israelites are sent into exile into Babylon and we're told that God's glory leaves the temple. God's glory leaves his people. If there was one thing worse than God's glory being with them, it was God's glory leaving them. God's glory leaving them. And that's what happens in the exile. God's glory leaves the temple. Uh, that could, it should have been, really, it could have been the end of the story. could have been the end of the story, but God in his grace, and you read about this in the prophets in the Old Testament, God promises a new beginning, something far better. God's glory would return to his people in a new, eternal, incredible temple The glorious God would be present with his people in a new way. Uh, This great tension between God's glory and his people who are in their sin, this great tension is finally, once and for all, resolved. This is what's promised. And here's how John's Gospel opens. uh, There's plenty of places we could go to for this, but this is one of them. John chapter 1 should be on the screen. In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And skipping down to verse 14, this Word, this glorious Word, became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. See what that's saying? Jesus comes as the full expression of God's glory in the flesh. In the Old Testament, God sort of showed his glory to his people in a cloud or you know the stories, God comes down in a cloud, this incredible, frightening reality. But here is something new. God himself, in all the, the majestic God, entering his creation in the person of Jesus. The great wonder of Jesus is that, you see, Jesus solves this problem that the Bible sort of sets up. He solves the great problem, the great distance between Sinful people and a holy, majestic, awesome God. How can we be in relationship with that kind of glorious God? And if you know the story, you'll know that he does it in the most incredible way. By giving himself up to death. Standing in the place of his people, dying for them and for their sin. Jesus, you see what Jesus, and we read later in John's Gospel, Jesus reveals the full extent of God's glory 
not just in God's majesty and power, God is majestic and powerful, but God's glory is supremely and wonderfully revealed to us in his grace and his love, his commitment to defeat evil, his commitment to forgive sin, even at the cost of Jesus' own life. But of course, Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead. And we're told he's seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again in glory, in all his glory, to judge the living and the dead. But there's even more than that, friends. I'm skipping through a lot here. Uh, But not only does uh, God doesn't just show his glory in the story of the Bible and supremely in Jesus, there's one more really surprising reality, one more thread to all of this. One of the ways that we see in the Bible as God showing his glory is by him sharing his glory. He's sharing his glory with his people. You get that? We saw this in Romans 8. Again, up on the screen, uh, when we're back in Romans 8, we saw this. Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Later on in that chapter, he talks about what this glory looks like in verse 23. It looks like our adoption to sonship into the family of God, the redemption of our bodies. We are in some incredible way brought into the very life of God, this glorious God, Father, Son and Spirit. We are Through united, being united to Jesus, we are adopted into his family. Death will no longer touch us. We will be given glorious resurrected bodies like Jesus's. Sin won't have hold over us and all of this will be to the praise of his glory and grace. Okay, well friends, that's a very quick Cook's tour of God's glory through the whole story of the Bible. Um, All of this has been about God and him revealing his glory. Uh, First in the Old Testament, then supremely in Jesus and even surprisingly in his people, sharing his glory with them. Uh, he's made it possible for us to do that. But flowing, all of that, uh, flowing out of all of that, there is also a real sense, not just about how God reveals his glory, but a real sense in which we then, as those who've received that great, incredible privilege, a real sense in which we now glorify God in our lives, in the lives that we live, the things that we do to bring him praise and glory. You get that in the Bible Uh, 1 Corinthians 10 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Des mentioned earlier um, the the Westminster Confession of Faith as well. The catechism it has, is that's the first question. What's man's chief end, the the goal that we're designed for? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So there is a real place for us to, with our lives, to bring glory to God. Not, in, not to kind of earn his favour, not because he ne- he's needy of us, but because we have received all of this and been brought into his glory. Friends, there's so much to think about here. All I want to do is just finish by reflecting on some ways in which this kind of um, shapes the way that we go about life. If, if this is true, if this is our chief end to, bring glory, to glorify God with our lives... Uh, if God is the all-glorious one who brings us into his own life through the gospel, um, 
How's that going to hit home for us? Uh, just a, a few thoughts. There'll be some points up on the screen as well. Um, it means that we, we revolve around him. He doesn't revolve around us. Uh, if God is the all-glorious one, he, he doesn't revolve around us. We revolve around him. We, uh, our life ought to be God-centred, not me-centred. Uh, I think this is a particular challenge for us in our culture. I think our, our culture encourages a kind of soft narcissism. If you know what narcissi- narcissism is, it's kind of being in love with your own image, thinking you're the centre of the universe. One study that was done recently found that one in four American college students agreed, they didn't know they were doing this, but they agreed with the majority of questions on a standard test for narcissistic traits. So they didn't realise they were doing that, but a quarter of students agreed with the majority of questions that um, would classify someone as narcissistic in a kind of psychological way. Uh, it's reinforced by how, uh, our con- how connected we are, I think, and social media and all that stuff, which can be used well for the gospel, but has its real dangers as well. Our focus on image and competition. It's also reinforced by the constant message that I am special, isn't it? Um, one author notes that, that the phrase, I am a special person, is actually one of the items on the narcissistic personality inventory, <laughs> the kind of clinical uh, tests that they do. And yet, I'm a special person, uh, is the gospel of our age, the thing that we all tell ourselves. Now, of course, we are valued and treasured and loved by God. Uh, but there's a difference between saying that and encouraging a kind of self-love uh, in this almost narcissistic way, and it gets in the way of us living a God-centred life. It gets in the way of us realising that we revolve around him. He doesn't revolve around us. We revolve around him. My friends, maybe the best, I think maybe the best antidote for a me-centred life, a way, maybe a way that we can kind of cultivate a God-centred life, is to cultivate an awe-filled life, not an awful life, an awe-filled life. Uh, the, gospel makes, the gospel makes us free from the kind of terrifying fear of God that the people in the Old Testament kind of experienced. Through Jesus, we, we're free from that kind of terrifying fear, but it doesn't mean that we should somehow kind of now forget how awesome God is how glorious he is, how majestic he is. There is such thing as a right, healthy, awe-filled fear of God. Not a terror that's uncertain about how God thinks of us, but an awe-filled fear. It's the gospel that teaches us this, uh, that a fear that is both full of thanks and wonder, that this majestic, all-glorious God, who doesn't need us, who is all-complete in and of himself, should bring us into his family through the death of his own son. That's the kind of thing that should fill us with awe and thanks. A God-centred life, an awe-filled life. Um, I said the next one, a united life. I just mentioned that because as we've been reading through Romans, uh, we saw this when we looked back in Romans 15, um, 
when Paul's talking about the church and the key to Christian unity, the key to churches working well together for the sake of the gospel, uh, where Paul finishes all that, and maybe you remember this if you're here when we're talking about that, uh, he sees it not primarily this idea of being united together. It's not primarily about us. It's, actually, it's not for our sake, primarily. It's primarily actually fundamentally about God's glory. It brings him glory. God is glorified when a diverse group of people like us, a group of people from all nations and cultures and backgrounds, when that sort of a group unites in praise and glory to him, he is glorified through that, a united life. The next one I put up there uh, is called, uh, I've, I've called a joined-up life. Uh, it was one of the great practical outcomes of the Reformation uh, was that they saw this idea of God's glory covering every part of life. Every part of life came under it. Um, there was a common kind of perception at the time uh, of kind of two tiers uh, in terms of, particularly in terms of Christian people. There was the extra special people who were uh, in the church, church and churches and ministers, or they're kind of on a higher plane than everyone else. But the reformers said, no, 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 that's rubbish. All of life is lived under God's, uh, God's glory. All of life can be lived for God's glory. Ordinary things uh, have, are filled with this great and special significance. I'm going to read out, um, just listen to this. Uh, this is from Martin Luther. Um, he's, he's talking about uh, how to live for God's glory in every aspect of life. And he, he, he writes this in terms of family life. Uh, it's a great quote, but it kind of shows how he saw even the most mundane things in family life can be done under God's glory, for God's glory. He writes, Now, uh, now observe that when that clever harlot, our natural reason, takes a, a look at married life, she turns up her nose and says, Alas, must I rock the baby, wash its diapers, make its bed, smell its stench, stay up nights with it, take care of it when it cries, heal its rashes and sores, then he says, what does Christian faith say to this? It opens its eyes, looks upon all these insignificant, distasteful and despised duties in the spirit and is aware that they are all adorned with divine approval as with the costliest gold and jewels. It says, O God, because I am certain that thou hast created me, as a man, and has from my body begotten this child, I also know for certainty that it meets with thy perfect pleasure. Uh, I confess to thee that I am not worthy to rock this little babe or wash its diapers or to be entrusted with the care of the child and its mother. How is it that I, without any merit, have come to this distinction of being certain that I am serving thy creature and thy most precious will? God, with all of his angels, and creatures is smiling, not because the father is washing diapers, but because he is doing so in Christian faith. It's a bit of a long kind of thing, but do you get the idea what, what Luther's saying? Even the most mundane, when you are, when you are up at three o'clock in the morning, changing pooey nappies, you can do that for God's glory, to the glory of God, in, and know that it is pleasing to. To him, and it applies to all aspects of life. It's a really liberating thing when you kind of think it through, that every part of your life can be lived for God's glory. 
Um, just the last um, point I just wanted to bring out that kind of flows out of this, if, uh, this to God's glory alone um, uh, aspect of the Reformation. I've put up there a mission-driven life. Um, there's uh, 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 something that um, an author called John Piper, you might have been aware of him as an American author, he's, he's brought this out really well, I think. Uh, he says that mission, that is seeking to spread the gospel, mission exists because worship doesn't. Mission exists because worship doesn't. That is to say, God is the all-glorious one and he, it is right for all people to worship him. Mission exists because worship doesn't. It is a tragedy that people don't trust Christ. It is a tragedy that they will face death and judgment without him. But there is another tragedy. Uh, God's great glory is in his salvation, in calling out a people to praise and worship him with their lives. It brings him glory when his people spread the news of his salvation, when they, in whatever kind of stumbling way, talk about going to church on Sunday or talk about God with their friends or talk about the difference that Jesus makes to them. Mission exists because worship doesn't, because God deserves all glory and honour and power and worship from all people. Uh, that is a really, I think, a motivating reality for us. Friends, there's just some... Uh, reflections there and uh, this uh, as I said is really just an intro introduction to the, the rest of the series when we look at how this overarching reality of everything to God's glory drove the reformers uh, in how they thought about how we are in relationship with this great and glorious God by his grace through faith by in Christ alone and that we have access to only in the scriptures alone and um, there's much more to think through there I'm going to pray, though, that these things can sink deeply into us. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we, Father, we come before you in awe, a kind of right awe, acknowledging who you are, the all-glorious creator of all things. Uh, Lord, we read in the Psalms that the heavens declare your glory, the skies proclaim the works of your hands. And Lord, you are glorious in and of yourself, but your glory has been made known so wonderfully and supremely, not only in your creation, but more than that, in saving us in your great plan of redemption to bring a sinful and fallen people into your family. Thank you for the wonder of that. May we never lose sight of that, and may it shape all aspects of our life. Please help us, Father, to keep us from our self-centeredness, Help us to recognise who you are and the rightful honour and place that you have. Uh, give us the kind of right awe that we need, Lord. Help us to be united together as we seek to bring you glory. Uh, help us to see every part of our lives as falling under your glory and that we can honour and glory, glorify you in every part of it. And Father, we pray, Lord, that you will fire us for your mission in this world knowing that it does glorify you to proclaim the gospel and to uh, see people brought into your family. Lord, uh, we've kind of just peered into deep things this morning, just dipped our toe in. We pray for the rest of today and this week. Father, for the rest of our lives, please continue to sink us deeper into this great reality. And we do pray all of that 
for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.